Okay, so we have had um, Eli and his sons are dead. The ark was taken. Every, the, the idol kept falling over and losing heads and limbs and, and worshiping God. And so the people there like moved it around village to village, and every village they, or every little town they put it in, they all got plagues and you know sores and started having trouble. So they finally took it back. And um, yeah, they're like, <laughs> well, and, and I love that. Yeah, were you, were you here when we talked about the oxen last time? Were you no. here by then? Oh, they, yeah, they put it up. They took two, uh, two mother cattle. They took the calves away from them. So the mothers that were still nursing, because mothers that are the nursing animals are inclined to, like, they won't wander away. They'll stay with their child. Mm -hmm. So they took the children and the, the calves and locked them up and then uh, put the cart being drawn by the two mothers and figured if they leave and take this back, then that will mean that their God is wanting this return to them because the mothers themselves would be inclined to stay. Right. So they put it on a cart being pulled by these mothers, and they followed it to watch and see if it would go into the town. <laughs> and it went right back to, to where, you know, near where it was supposed to be, like went to the first town, and so they, they got it all taken back. But, um, but yeah. Yeah, the ark was returned and restored. And, and, and they, you know, because and their, their thought and what they said was, um, you know, Let's learn from, and they even said, let's learn from what happened to the Egyptians. <laughs> They're like, lest we lose all our firstborn, you know. We, we would like to not suffer that much. We, we, we've suffered enough to get the hint. <laughs> let's go ahead and send this back. Recorded in Egyptian history, though? I don't know. I know that they found more and more things that Something they had think, to be written somewhere. You would think yeah, the there's... I mean, if they find all the Pharaoh stuff, yeah, you think... Well, they're like, oh, this looks bad. Well, remi well, the, well that's the thing. Rem <laughs> you know, you have to remember... Exist. You have to remember that history is written by the people. And if there were lots and lots of things, especially with the Pharaoh that they believe that was, there was lots of stuff even before him that he rewrote to make it look like... Or no, there, I'm sorry, there was later Pharaoh who rewrote a lot of stuff to make it look well, like he had done things that he didn't school, do. And, you know, how much you learn of in history, like, it doesn't delve too much into everybody else but us. And our right. Stuff. And our the version of it. Bad. Yeah, and our version <laughs> of it. I posted on Facebook the other day, I don't know if you saw it, but it was like, you know, Vikings rescuing women and children whose husbands have died in burning buildings, you know. <laughs> Without saying they set it on fire, but you know <laughs> the good humanitarians that the Vikings were. You know they giving homes to those women and children. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And so, you know, so they 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 found though references to different things that that somewhat confirmed the story. They actually have found a like there was there was question about. Um, even like about Joseph, they kept mm -hmm. people kept saying, "Oh, that never happened," and then they found uh, coins that had an image that's very much, you know, that, that has the name that the Bible says was the Egyptian name of Joseph, and like the an area that was in like a suburb off of Egypt where there was a statue that appeared to be how Joseph was described. So then they went, "Oh, maybe that did happen." And so, you know, um, I, I've mentioned it before, but my my archaeology professor he said one of the one of the best known unspoken rules in archaeology is if you want to get funding, say you're going to dig where the Bible says something happened. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian or the funders are Christian. Wow. If you dig somewhere that the Bible said something happened, you will find something. 
And uh, a lot of times they think they've found what, like, they think they'll find something and then they'll say, oh, this is totally different from what the Bible says. But then they'll go like a few layers deeper and like, oh, this, this is what the Bible says. <laughs> and so, so yeah, they, they, they found a lot more. They found yeah. a lot more though. Um, I know the coin I think was like in the back of a museum in a box that had been part of a part of a collection that had never gone on display and no one had ever opened it. Yeah. And then somebody opened it and there was all this stuff inside that they went, "Oh, well, I think that's Joseph." <laughs> so it's 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 definitely fascinating. So. So here we've got, they've just, you know, they've returned it to you. Um, oh, in Deuteronomy 21, though. Um, so we're gonna, we'll, we'll get to that in our, in our uh, Samuel story. But in Deuteronomy 21, he's still going through the things to do. Um, we've talked about the uh, setting up the towns. If somebody accidentally kills somebody, go and, you know, they can run there. And, um, and as we, you know, th that if they... You know, they'll get a fair trial and, and everything else. So we're starting in Deuteronomy 21. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So this, this was the... This is the, their way of saying, you know, swearing on, swearing on the Bible in a court, you know, and saying, saying so we know nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So it's kind of like a, a, a mini Yom Kippur, if you will, you know, a, a specific related to this particular death. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're testifying that we didn't do it, we don't know who did it, and yet, however it happened, could you cover it? Hmm. So when you go out to war against your enemies, <coughs> and the Lord, <coughs> the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. And, and pare, like, cut, cut her nails her down, nails. yeah. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. Okay. I, and, and I'm just going to say it just because sometimes with the literal reading, things, like things that I never read, I've learned, I've learned to try and read more literally because sometimes people ask questions and then I go, huh? And so um, I, I'm, I'm 
almost positive that it means she's supposed to take off those clothes and put on new ones, not that she's mourning naked for 30 days in the uh, house. Uh, just, uh, <laughs> because, because it doesn't actually say to put on the other clothes. I just noticed that that literal reading of it. So after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. So in other words, give her those 30 days to mourn, mourn her husband. Yes. Um, but if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not, or yeah, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. And I know that there's. I'm gonna grab it. I know there was commentary about this, and I thought I would remember it, but I should know my mind ends up. So Deuteronomy 21. Um, Let me see, verse 10-ish, okay. No, I'm in the wrong one, hold on. Okay, um, this, is, this is from the, the Chumash uh, notes, but it says, the woman of beautiful form. In this passage, the Torah responds to the often inflamed passion of a soldier in battle. If he sees a woman among the enemy captives and feels an uncontrollable desire for her, the Torah recognizes that he may not be able to restrain himself. Rather than risk sin that may lead to further spiritual contamination, the Torah provides an avenue for the lustful soldier to satisfy his desire so that it will cool before it causes more harm. Um, according to Rashi and Ramban's understanding of the plain sense of the passage, the soldier may not molest the woman then, but he is permitted to put her through the process described below, after which he may marry her, um, and they say even against her wishes, and since he knows that she will become permitted to him later, he will be willing to wait rather than sin. According to most commentators, however, he is permitted to cohabit with her one time, even before she undergoes the process. After that one time, he may not, and I think that's because it says he's humiliated her. After that one time, he may not live with her again before she completes the lengthy procedure described here. According to either interpretation, the purpose of the long delay is so that the captor's desire will evaporate in the interim and he will set her free. The juxtaposition of the first three passages of the Sidra are in themselves an explicit argument against this sort of liaison, for after giving the laws of the captive woman, the Torah speaks of a hated wife and then an incorrigib incorrigibly rebellious child. The implication is that there is a chain reaction. This improper infatuation with a captive woman will lead to one family tragedy after another. Um, and it says the so in other words, it's not like God, they, they don't see this as God saying, this is a good thing. You should do this. You know, if you see somebody beautiful, go ahead, go bring her into your home and make her your wife. It's, it's more that God is saying, if you see someone and you don't think you can control yourself, these are some restrictions on you to try and give that time for you to realize, oh, yeah, that, that was just, I was all inflamed from battle, and, and I really should conduct myself better. Um, so the captive woman remains in the home of her captor for a period of time during which her state of mourning and general dishevelment will make her un unattractive so that he will lose interest and set her free. Um, Oh, and he, the reference for the garment of her captivity that she's supposed to take off, it says it was customary for Gentile women to wear their finery in time of war in order to entice their captors. Because remember when they sent out all the women to try and, and, and entice the Israelite men so that they could, you know, 
be, be, be happy with us. Be our friends and don't kill our families and, you know, <laughs> just live here and we'll come visit you. Um, so it says, uh, her father and her mother, if her parents are still alive, she mourns her separation from them. If they were killed in the war, she mourns their death. The Torah shows that one should honor parents both in life and in death. Ramban cites the view of, of Rebakiva that these terms refer allegorically to her former god and homeland, <clears throat> which she will be leaving forever. Tears of grief for a catharsis that helps people forget the past and make peace with new situations. In her case, that she is leaving her past life and will soon become a Jewess. If the Jewish captor has the hoped for change of heart, he sets her free even if she chooses to go back to her idol-worshipping origin, since her conversion had been con coerced only so that he could marry her. The conversion is not valid if the marriage will not take place. If, however, she had converted of her own free will, or if the marriage had taken place and later she fell into disfavor, she remains a Jewess, and like any other Jew, she cannot renounce her Judaism. So simply by marrying her, she re received all of the rights of a Jewish wife which is kind of important because that was not given to everybody. Um, and the because you have afflicted her, it says the Jew has caused this woman to suffer, whether by forcing her to live with him when she was first captured or by forcing her to endure the ordeal described above. Therefore, if he is not marrying her, he should let her go free and has no right to impinge on her freedom in any way. So it's, I, I like reading I, in the commentary when I encounter things like this. I, I like the... The, the you know the the understanding that they never that it, that it wasn't ever a yeah this is a good thing we should all get wives this way let's go you know <laughs> fall in love with women in the middle of battle and it's not a great way to pick up chicks. yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and yet there is an acknowledgement that she may you may find favor in her eyes and you know that she may choose to stay and that that you know that if, that if you that there's this this opportunity that if you really do have a more pure motive towards her, that this would be a time that you're serving her and, and caring for her and trying to win her. And, um, you know, I, I would imagine that what, you know, that, there, that there's, when I, when I read this, especially from a woman's perspective, I think, yeah, there's this time for the guy to cool, cool his jets and be like, oh, maybe this was not what I, no, this was a mistake. But I think that some of that may come if she's out, you know, she may be a beautiful woman, but if she's clearly not wanting to be there with you and, and un completely unpleasant and not at all inclined to this idea, I think most men would be, after the 30 days, like, yeah, you just need to go. <laughs> 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 and so, yeah, yeah, it's like, wow, that was way more hassle than that was worth. Because <laughs> yeah. he can't put her out before that 30 days. You know, he's, he's obligated to care for her for that 30 days. And, you know, I, I would imagine if she didn't want to be there by the end of that, he'd be like, now you can go. <laughs> Get out. I don't want to do this. So, um, you know, and yet if they, you know, if they do marry, then, then she has all of those rights uh, as, as, you know, uh, as, as being counted as Jewish. So, um, you know, and you may, they can't sell her, you know, you can't, you can't keep her and treat her as a slave and not marry her, you know, she, you can't, you, you can't have some other uh, benefit from this. So if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, it, yeah, this can't possibly 
like be trying to fix things that maybe happened to I don't know Jacob or <laughs> Abraham. Or <laughs> We've had this happen before, so let's lay down some ground rules here. You know? <laughs> then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons. He may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength. So, so if, you're, if your firstborn son comes from the wife you don't love, not only can you not make the other child from your loved wife she, he can't. He not only can't receive the firstborn blessing, but that firstborn almost as though as, as compensation for growing up as the the child of the woman that you didn't treat with this this increased respect. He he gets a double inheritance. He gets a double portion. Yeah. So this is um, mean that polygamy is okay. No. It doesn't say that. Um, one of yeah, well, right, but <laughs> but just like just like it doesn't say that taking the woman in battle and forcing her into this position is good. Right. It's and that's one of the things that um, that that you know is in a lot of commentary is the idea that there there were situations and circumstances that Moses was addressing because they were culturally part of that time. And, and yet, it doesn't say, it's good for you to have multiple wives. It simply says, if you have multiple wives, here are some guidelines for how you have to treat them. But at the same time, it doesn't say, don't have two wives. Right. It doesn't. Yet, one of the, the things one of, one of my professors had said at one point, which I, I thought was just a great addressing of this, is that there, God, God's culture is, is very specific. And he, but he takes, us where our, he takes us where we are in our culture. And then he begins to move us towards his culture. Like we, we, as we become kingdom people, we, he, we change. And, and we grow and we, we do things differently and we understand things differently. And so... They pointed out that when God set this covenant with the Jewish people, by the time of Yeshua, polygamy was no longer a, a common practice. And so that that can be seen. You know, what is God's what is God's view on this? Well, according to Yeshua, the proper interpretation of Torah is a, a man and wife. But there were issues that had to be addressed, and so God gave guidelines, and this was a cultural thing that, that was common at that time. And, and it, one of the things um, that it always makes me think of, did you, did you see the movie, I think it was Defiance, about the three Russian, Jew, Russian Jewish brothers and their cousin? Okay, great movie. Um, slight spoiler, but it's a history thing, so it's, it's not like, it's not taught in schools. Uh, but these... These three Russian brothers, when, when Hitler's army went into their area of Russia, they escaped to the forest, and their, I think their cousin was with them, and, and then other, they, like, people who had escaped to the forest started connecting, and these brothers ended up being the leaders of what turned out to be a town that they built 
in the forest of how, what two thousand something Jews? No, I think I don't think it was that many. Was it? it wasn't fifty thousand? Yeah, I mean they were like a whole city. They had a hospital. By the time the war ended, and by the time that they were discovered, they had they had rebuilt their town had been destroyed as they had to move. Like as the as the Jew, as the attackers got closer, they had to rebuild their town like three times. But at the end of the war, it was thousands of people, and they had a school and a hospital, and and I mean it was like this whole community. And and in the movie, it was it was really interesting because the women knew that they needed to partner with the men to survive, you know, they needed somebody to help build a house. And, and if they were going to have children and continue the lines, they needed each other. And so there's this one scene um, where uh, one of the brothers is up, like, working on a roof, and this guy comes, and he goes, you know, have, you, have, have I introduced you to my forest wife? And, and he says... No, but I know your town wife. How do you think she would she would feel about this? And he said, I don't know if my town wife is alive. Uh oh. He said, but this is my forest wife. And he said, okay. <laughs> and and so it was. It, it was it was this very big awareness that they needed each other, and and so um, there are one of the reasons like when when. Uh, missionaries, when a lot of missionaries go into different village communities and different, that, that practice polygamy, they have actually found that if you go in in that first generation and tell them, you're not supposed to have polygamous marriages, you need to, you need to uh, just be with your first wife, it, in, the, in the village, it illegitimizes all of the children born of the other wives. The other wives have no one to take care of them. And, and they, the, the whole community suffers in incredible ways. And so what they've learned to do is, you know, is to start teaching about God's idea of marriage for the next generation or two. And they are less inclined to enter polygamous marriages. And, and, and that kind of changes the practice. So it helps save the community. You don't have to care at all. Right. Right. You, you don't go in and go, no, in God's eyes, you're not really married. Yeah. You know, but to start teaching, you know. Because it affected so many other people. <laughs> exactly. Because then you, you have children who have no inheritance from their father. You have women who have no one taking care of them. And um, so, so that's kind of how I see a lot of this is, you know, is this is coming into a community that practices polygamy and saying, here's how you have to treat each other. Here, and, and, and also saying, here's how you have to view each other. Because this one thing that, that about this law, if, you, you know, if you're a young man, especially if you're the young man who grows up being the son of an unloved wife, you might be less inclined to marry multiple women and put any other child through that. And, you know, because you see with Isaac, Isaac, only had one wife. You know the whole Isaac Esau thing? Isaac had one wife. <laughs> you know? And Jacob's kids really, they, they saw what happened to their mothers. And, and, you know, so some of them only had one wife and some of them, you know, had more than one. But, but it's, you know, so, so that, the thought is that these were restrictions on how you can treat people as, as opposed to 
you know, promoting, you know, go marry a lot of women. And then that one you don't love, you know, give a double portion to her son. And, you know, this is all happy and good. It's more like... So you, like you were the second kid from the unloved? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> so, so these, it's more, yeah, it's more about let's put some boundaries on the things that, that you're doing. Um, so he, he gives him a double portion. Uh, the right of the firstborn is his. Uh, verse 22, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Where are you? Yeah, verse seemed, 22? I seem to jump from, okay, here's oh, what's happening to... Did it, did it skip a verse? Yeah, what, what, so happens, what happens to the firstborn of the loved one then? If a man has a stubborn and rebellious... Oh, did I, that was how 18, did that happen? Oh, I missed 18 through 19. Okay. 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 Will you read it? Because I apparently I did not one. copy it. No, I did not copy that one. Oh, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened, is that chastened, chastened him, him, yeah, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the eldest of his, of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away, so you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear can't believe I forgot that verse. <laughs> so, okay. so many times I have to address that verse when I, with people online. So um, I'll, I want to read the commentary. I'll let, I'll let you know, rather than... than cause it, now yeah, the comments... Well, because that's see, one I of the things... I've stoning a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> but, but because this comes up a lot, you know, and in different things when somebody's trying to say... You know, well, God's word says this is a sin. And they're like, oh, are you going to stone your kids? So, you know, it's, it's, it, it kind of drives me crazy because, yes, I can say God's word says this is a sin without also stoning my child. I mean, it, it's not, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's not actually that, that kind of, oh, well, if you're going to call this a sin, you have to do this too. Because this doesn't say stone your children. Yeah. It says in a particular situation... This is the recourse at that time. And, and yes, it is a sin for a child to be those things. But I think the commentary is really, is really telling here. Because um, it says, the understanding of the full meaning of this passage must revolve around two teachings of the sages. A, the death penalty imposed on this youngster is not because of the gravity of any sins he actually performed, but because his behavior makes it clear that he will degenerate into a monstrous human being. The wayward and rebellious son is put to death because of his inevitable end. Let him die while he is innocent, and let him not die when he is guilty of the capital crimes he would go on to do. And B, so many detailed requirements are derived exegetically from this passage that it is virtually impossible for such a case ever to occur. Indeed, the sages state that there never was and never will be a capital, ca a ca a capital case involving such a son. 
If so, many commentators contend the passage must be understood as an implied primer for parents on how to inculcate values into their children. For example, the sage's exegesis that the boy's father and mother must have similar voices is interpreted to teach that they do not contradict one another in what they expect of themselves and their child, for consistency is basic to success in child rearing. This point is offered only by way of illustration, for it is beyond the scope of this commentary to go into the many details of that exegesis. But the son, he could not be liable to a court-imposed penalty if he were not yet bar mitzvah. Okay, so this is really important. This is talking about a child who's at least, a boy who's at least 13. Um, yet the Torah calls him a son, indicating that he is still a child subject to the authority of his parents. So that, that right there is, you know, he can't, be, he can't be put on trial until he's bar mitzvahed, and yet the reference to him uh, as a son in the way that it said means that he has to still be a child, not an adult. So he's 13 to 20. Actually, no. It means he's over 13 and he's not over 13. So it's, it's inherently a contradiction. Thus, the sages teach that this entire process must occur during the first three months after his bar mitzvah. Sure. So, yeah. So, so who's last name? Um, so, yes, yeah, so you have a three-month three window to realize this is not going to go well. Uh, otherwise, oh, okay, this is the time when a boy's impulses begin to be aroused, and it is at this point that parents and educators must exert themselves to strengthen the influence of the Torah and its teachings. Otherwise, the youngster's emerging appetite may become too powerful for anyone to restrain. Ramban comments that the underlying sins that are harbingers of worse things to come are uh, derogation of his parents, an extreme gluttony that indicates a complete lack of self-restraint necessary for Jewish holiness to develop in him and a refusal to behave in a way that will bring closeness to God. Parents' love of God must supersede their love of their children if the Torah commands that they must be ready even to hand their son over to the court. Abraham was the prototype of such devotion when he bound Isaac on the altar. The message is clear. Unless a society has values that come above normal human emotions, that society will crumble and children will become the enemies of what their parents revere. So he has to be a glutton and a drunkard. The boy must have stolen from his parents enough money to buy and consume a large amount of meat and alcoholic beverages. If this is how he acts now, he will become a murderous bandit to satisfy his ravenous appetite. So, so in other words, this is very, very specific. In other words, your kid has to be bar mitzvah. And then after, because at bar mitzvah, they, they stand up and say, this, I, I accept this as my faith, I'm, I'm moving into adulthood, I'm subject to the courts. And in that first three months, must show himself to be of such reprehensible nature that, that everyone looks at him and goes, oh, this is not going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> but you would think he'd have indicators leading up to that point to begin with. Well, exactly. Like all of a sudden, right. But, that, but that's why they say that this penalty is even addressed after you've had 13 years to raise this boy. And as we know from Eli's sons not being put to death, I mean, this, and it says this was never done. It was not actually understood as God saying, kill your son because the, the requirements for it were so stringent, but it was really understood as don't raise a child who is going to do these things. You know, stop these, pull those weeds when you see them. Address these things as they come up. You know, don't, don't wait and then subject the entire community to your child 
that is completely undisciplined and, and unwilling to submit to Torah in the community. Um, and then, so we've talked about, so talking about death, then it moves into verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And this becomes specifically important in the, the, the telling of what happened to Yeshua on the cross. This is why they had to get his body down before sundown and, and bury it. And this is also why, I mean, there, there's, yes, there are spiritual implications to it, and, and yes, we've talked about some, and we'll talk about them in the future, but the idea that when, you know, when it's talked about that Yeshua became a curse for us, this is the specific thing that it's talking about. He was, he's considered cursed because he hung on a tree. And, um, and, and so by, by taking him on, you know, so it, so it was done appropriately. And, um, you know, to take him down and, and to bury him, and that it, it was a specific, and, and this, is, this is talked about quite a lot because um, this was not generally how people were taken care of in the, this is not how things were done in the Jewish community. They were usually stoned or, or, or sent away. So this is, um, it, I'm gonna, hold on, I'm trying to figure out if it has, Okay, and so what, what the, way they, the way that Ramban interprets it says the body of a person executed by stoning for idolatry or blasphemy must be hung, but it must be taken down and buried before nightfall because it's degraded. So, so according to Ramban, they, you know, they would stone you and then they would put you up on a pike, kind of a, like a, more like the public hangings, you know, where everybody would come out and get, see the exam. See, children, this is what happens if you don't, <laughs> if you don't behave. It was for blasphemy. Well, the very anything because there's they're they're interpreting it as anything punishable by death. If they're if they're punishable by death, and you hang them on the tree to make an example of them, make sure you take them down. But it does I mean, it does specifically refer to what happened to Yeshua because he was hung on a tree, and and so they they tried to make sure that they made sure that they got him down before sundown. So going into Deuteronomy 22, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. Have you seen this ox? You know, found ox. <laughs> Coming clean. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, just thinking like stray dogs. So you pick up the stray dog and you take care of it until you find the owner. The, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, this would also assume, though, that, it, that you know it's a stray and that it's not, you know, if you're, if you're some way far off and you're like, this dog just showed up, you know, or this, this ox, hey, you've wandered over here. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. 
That's just time. tucked right in the middle there, isn't yeah, it? Really. <laughs> Well, what what it's what they say is the Torah forbids men and women to adopt garb and other practices that are associated with the other with the other sex. Is that why some uh, some sections have a big problem with women wearing pants? Yes, yes, this is one of the places they get it. But the, you know, the response to that is that in our society at this time, that's not. I mean, there are they, women's pants are sold. They're not, right. you know, men's pants and, women's and pants. it's not a unisex. But even even if you wear, but see, but that's the thing. Just because it was designed for for a male body or a male preference doesn't inherently make it male jeans because jeans are worn by men and women. But this would be more presenting yourself at, you know, dressing to present yourself as a man. You know, adopting the masculine wear and and presentation of yourself as a male or the effeminate. You know, it's more cross-dressing. Um, so it says, this is to avoid excessive mingling that can lead to... And, you know, this this is to avoid excessive mingling that can lead to promiscuity, which is why some would say, yes, you know, unisex genes do lead to promiscuity. And... I, I never found that to be the case, but um, thus the sages apply this prohibition to men who are excessively concerned with personal grooming and to women who wear uh, battle dress. So as long as you're not wearing battle dress, you're okay. What if they go to the SCA? And you would dress as a woman and not in a man's battle dress. <laughs> So, you know, and so basically this is against the whole... Make sure you have a good breastplate. Yeah, this is against the whole metrosexual kind of, you know... the breasts. Yeah, yeah. So... No. You know, so it has... It, it's basic... But, but the idea is... The idea is about... Um, it's, really, it's really about not confusing... You know, when, with the goal being not leading to promiscuity, it's, you know, like, I think of Mulan when she ran out to war and pretended to be a man. Right. You know, she, she, and, and, and not it so shows. Not the, quote, battle gear, but the masculine Right, yeah, she gear. literally dressed as a, you know, she right. pretended to be a man so she could be in the battle. And, and that would put, and it, and it kind of is an issue in Mulan, though, addressed in Disney level. Um, you know, she was out there with the guys doing all the guy things, and it was very awkward for her and uncomfortable for her. You know, there, there are things that when you've got a whole giant group of men out in a field in battle alone, they're doing and saying things that they wouldn't necessarily say if they knew a woman was there. And so it's, it's an uncomfortable yes, situation. Very true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so what yeah. What are you guys doing? <laughs> Guy thing. Yeah. So so it's saying you know the the goal here the goal here is to is to not, um, you know it's it's to not having things leading to promiscuity and and it could be very awful for a woman found in that kind of a setting if there were no you know. Or very awful for the guy that sees this cute thing in a dress. Ex yeah, or well, or or who violates her because she's there, and you know because she's hiding, she can't tell anybody. Or you know, there, it's it's just it's to prevent misbehaviors, to prevent that inappropriateness. So uh, verse six. Yeah, if, that was kind of thrown in there. Yeah, yeah. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. 
You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. Yeah. And it does, it's, you know, I, I hate to say eggs, it, I hate, the bird. but don't eat the bird, right? Don't eat them together and, and don't kill them both. I, this, this, ver, this, this paragraph, or this, um, this chapter, and, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but it feels like sitting with an elder who wants to pass on all the things that they know to be wisdom before they go, you know, it's like, oh, and don't, if you, if you, you know, if you find a bird, <laughs> there's eggs. You can eat the eggs, but let the bird go. Okay, Grandpa, you know. <laughs> I mean, and I know. And then, I don't. Don't dress like a man. Uh, yeah. And you should not dress. And yeah, and 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 I and I don't I don't say that disrespectfully. I'm not suggesting that that doesn't make this as as deeply you know worthy of respect as everything else in Torah. It's just all these things put together the way they are. There, there's this is a chapter that there's like no that exact way. Somebody rambling. Right. Yeah, well, and it because it, it does it just doesn't have the flow of most of the things, and this is one this is one of the things that people look to to suggest that there were actually parts of these uh, that were written later or that were added in to record things that were taught, um, and you know, okay, if that maybe I don't know, but I I take each of these instructions as being from Moses and as being. You know and Moses what God taught him. There. Yes, he's about he's to go. He he is trying to remind them of everything before he dies. So that he very much could be like, oh, and this. Yeah. And what was that other that. thing? The birds. The birds. I got to tell you about the birds. Yeah. So so these this, these are all worthy of respect and worthy of of attention. But it is yes, it's an awkward flow. There's not a lot of segues here. You need like a enter yeah. between them. When when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof or basically a fence for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Huh? Okay. Oh. This, is the, this, this is the instruction to build a fence around your roof, which if you think about the adobe-style South American homes that have the flat roof, they all have that raised ledge around them. Um, in Israel, in a lot of places in Mexico and South America, Central America, uh, M Middle East, I mean, lots of different places, the, that roof is a dwelling place. It's, it's like a courtyard, but it's up on top of the house. They yeah. slept up there during the if, weather. If there was a guest, you could no. you'd open up a cot there. up there. Um, in fact, it was an outdoor lot. Yes. In fact, I think it was, it was a, Elijah, actually, the woman that he went and stayed with all the time when her son died. Normally, he stayed up on the roof, and he slept there. So the idea is, if you're going to have people up on your roof, protect them so that they don't stumble off the edge. But you know, especially if you're having a party up there, you know, and there's any wine involved, you don't want someone getting drunk and tipping off the side. And so, so this was a this was basically it's saying make your house so that everybody's safe at every level and in every place. Um, yeah. So I mean, if you have a roof that it's not possible for anyone to ever stand on, that doesn't mean you need to put a, a ceremonial roof. You know, some people will do that, and if that's what they feel convicted to do, that's awesome. But you know, this is about this is speaking to people being up on your roof and keeping them safe. So you shall because on certain roofs, even if you put that little thing, it's not going to stop them from <laughs> rolling right on over it. So you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited the crop that you have sown, and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. 
You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment of which you cover yourself. And there is... Um, See, I don't see what I was going to look for. Um, okay, so if any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity, then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. What kind of evidence? How was this thing? Generally, it was... Uh, generally, it was understood to be the sheet on which they had spent their wedding night. Um, and so they got to keep that for a while. Yeah. Um, it, it, and not it could all women bleed. Right. But it could also potentially have been sisters or maidservants who, like, like uh, we just watched Much Ado About Nothing. And the first thing they do is they turn to her cousin who shares a room with her. And says, were because the it, the accusation of the night that it happened, and they're like, were you her 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 bed, you know, sister last night? And she says, no, not last not last night, but every other night of her life I have been. And this is not her character. This is not what she does. This is not who she is. And so, the uh, the thing that that the teaching I really appreciated about this that I heard years ago is that um, this requires that both that the woman is not a virgin, but also that she had, that he found out on their wedding night. So, because we, we know other places, if a woman isn't a virgin, he can still marry her, and, and you know, there's certain different requirements. So the idea being that she falsely presented herself as being a virgin, and that, that he found out late, you know, that he found out on their wedding night. So if she tells him, then, um, and in fact, if, if he tells her, or, you know, if she tells him and he marries her anyway, then he can't put her out for that. So. Right. So basically it's don't, don't present yourself falsely. So verse 16, And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. <laughs> And they, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. Poor woman stuck with the guy. Right, but she's the one who has the right of sex so she, doesn't, she gets to be taken care of for the rest of her life and he can't put her out. Still, he's going to put up with a miserable dude. Well, or not. Maybe just, you're not welcome in my tent, buddy. <laughs> So, but if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the many of the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So he gets whipped, and she gets stuck with him, or she dies. Well, because yeah. it's the difference between whoring herself out versus false, yeah, versus, versus, um, False accusation. False accusation. And, and the idea being that he actually believes this. So if he's lying about her, then it falls under all different. Like if he's intentionally lying about her, then this is, this is if a man, you know, if he suddenly is with her and he finds out, you know, he, he's thinking, I don't think she's a virgin. I think I was duped. 
versus, you know, you said something that ticked me off and suddenly I'm going to go accuse you. You know, because that, if you thought that of them prior, you know, you, you think you should have figured that, that you didn't like them prior to the wedding. You know what I mean? So it's the difference between like making up a lie and thinking, I think, I think I'm stuck. I, I think she's not a virgin. I think I, I was I, lied to. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's somewhat inherently unfair. And yet the different things that they're, that they would be guilty of are not necessarily on par. And this was also a very male-dominant society, too. Well, and, and for so a long time they lived in tents. Well, they lived in tents, and you would think that people would know if somebody was guilty of those things. Um, but if she, if she actually did sleep around and, and then deceived this man and lied to him, pre pre presenting herself as a virgin, then you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Which is another thing, you know, when, that, when the woman was brought, the woman caught in adultery who was brought to Yeshua. And, and the first question really needs to be, where was the man? If she was caught in adultery, where's the dude? Because you can't be in adultery alone. So if there is a betrothed virgin and the man, a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the idea, the idea being that because she was in the city and if she had cried, anyone would have heard her. And in this community, every you know people would have gone to... It's not like in New York where if you cry rape, nobody's going to come and help you. So you have to cry fire. Um, you know, this it would she would have been helped, and she didn't. It it then implies that she willingly went off with him, and you know, so she's a young betrothed woman who's off making herself available. So, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. So, when he said, she said, when nobody was around, you know, to to support either side, she said. 100% believed, he goes to death. Um, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. For, uh, she has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Um, but again, we've just been told if, if, um, if it was rape, if it was rape, he could die. But he gets killed if it's consensual. And this is generally what's understood to be what happened with Dinah and the Prince of Shechem, that she went with him, you know, she was willingly with him. And, um, and different, different uh, versions say, um, like in, in this one it says, and takes hold of her and lies with her. It's not necessarily like jumping out from behind a bush and throwing her to the ground. It's more like, you know, hey, baby. <laughs> And, and the idea being men need to be responsible. You can't take away her virginity and then leave her as a shamed woman. You have to pay the 50 shekels of silver. And you don't ever get to divorce her. So if you put the cart before the horse, you're stuck. You can't leave. You know? Um, I'm not stuck. 
She, it doesn't say she can't divorce him. It says he can't divorce her. Yes, but the div- yeah, and divorce. <laughs> yes, well, I mean it does, it does, but there are other things on when you know what was accepted in the community for when someone left and stuff. So, uh, but that wouldn't contradict them. But yes, it says he he can't he can't basically he can't you know get the goods and then disappear. Uh, or grow bored with her, and and I think one of the things that I, as I've studied that and thought about that, one of the things that I that I, I ha- the thought I had when I read it at one point was, if you are a man who is impetuous and and especially in a community where where marriage was the expected beginning of the sexual relationship, you can't, you are not allowed to. Uh, um, or if you show yourself to be so impetuous that you that you do this and you don't wait, then you could show you could become impetuous and decide you don't really want to stay with her. You could just you know you, your your self control is is lacking in a way that they want to protect the woman and you can't just well, grow bored with her and kick her out. Now, teenage boys, I don't right. love you, baby. Right. Yeah. And now I don't love you. And anymore. now I don't anymore. I right. Love her. Right. And they're saying no, no, no. If you love her. <laughs> You, you, you have to stay and take care of her. And you can't leave. Right. So verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Ew. Good advice. Yes. Yes. So 1 Samuel 7. And, and so, you know, Eli is dead again. And Did we lose Taylor? Yes. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They were the ones who called and said, can you come get the ark of the Lord and take it? And brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So they, they reaffirmed their, their covenant with the Lord and got rid of all the idolatry stuff. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, so that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Tell now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. 
Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. When Samuel became old, starting uh, chapter 8, he made his sons judges over Israel. The names of his firstborn son was Joel, uh, and the name, or Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Everybody gets even he didn't even do a very good job. Huh? Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Because remember, God knew this was happening. We just did this a couple weeks ago. When you get there, you're going to want a king. Here's what the king's going to do. Um, so Samuel knows that God said this. Samuel knows what's going to happen if they get a king. He's not thrilled. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that you, they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So don't worry about it, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So give them their king, but you're going to warn them. I wonder why they kept rejecting so many times. Yeah, why do we do so many things so many times so stupidly? So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. So to be his horsemen and run before his chariot. He will hook your sons like horses to pull his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And this, so this is an addition to the tenth that they're supposed to give to God. In other words, he's saying, you know, he's going to declare that he's worthy of that tenth. Right. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. That's when he says, I give up. Yeah, he's like, okay, go home. I'll, I'll get your king. And we're going to encounter Saul shortly, and that's not going to go well. We'll just say that. So on that note, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you, and may he grant you his peace. Amen. So...